What are the tiny things that can undermine your connection to others, especially your partner? While they may seem innocuous or be downright obvious, once you learn how to see the microaggressions happening in your life, either the ones you're receiving or the ones you're committing, you'll have the key to limiting their impact on you and your relationships. That's what's coming up in today's episode. Now, when it comes to building intimacy and connection, almost nothing is as important as the communication in your relationship. So if you want to improve your ability to stay connected, no matter how challenging the thing is that you're talking about, make sure that you download my free guide to my top three relationship communication secrets. These three things are fairly easy to put into practice, but they will make a huge difference in terms of your ability to handle the big topics or the little ones in ways that help you stay connected to the people that you treasure the most. To download the guide, just visit neilsatin.com slash relate, or you can text the word relate to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And if you are interested in checking out my complete Secrets of Relationship Communication course, this course covers basically all the things that you can do to transform the communication in your relationship. And it doesn't rely on your partner changing anything. They're all the the leverage points that you have to improve the way that you communicate, improve your level of being understood and, and gotten by others, and your and it will help you understand others and their perspectives and and find ways to bridge the gaps in understanding that that can keep us disconnected when we want to stay connected so uh, if you want to check out the full course just visit neilsatin.com slash course c-o-u-r-s-e to check it out just a reminder that relationship alive is an offering for you so that you can have the best relationships possible with others and with yourself. If you are finding the show to be helpful, please consider a donation to ensure that we can continue. Every little bit helps, and you can choose whatever feels right for you. So to support the show, just visit neilsatin.com support or text the word support to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And this week, I would like to thank Cynthia, Julie, Alana, Maribeth, Kent, Laura, Sarah, Judith, and Dave. Thank you all so much for your generous and in many cases ongoing contributions to Relationship Alive. And finally, before we dive in, uh, just a reminder that we have a free group on Facebook, the Relationship Alive community, where you can get support in a safe space to uh, talk about things that are going on for you in your relationship. And uh, if you have any questions for me, uh, just record yourself asking the question and email it to questions at relationshipalive.com. And uh, I will be going through the questions that get submitted to answer them here on the show. So I hope to hear from you with with a good question. Go ahead, take a risk, be vulnerable, something that really matters in your life. I would love to talk to you about it. So just uh, submit a question. And all right, that's it. Let's get on with the show. (music) 
Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. There is a lot going on in the world today. And of course, there's always a lot going on in the world today. But in particular, if you've been paying any attention to the news or to the Facebook or other forms of social media, then you're aware that front and center in today's world, along with uh, the pandemic that's going on, are issues of racial equity and justice and ways that we as a greater community can become more aware of what's happening in the world and, and also take action to improve our own situation and the situation of everyone around us in ways that are like a rising tide where we, we all get to benefit from increased understanding and harmony and decreased um, acts of aggression or intolerance. Um, and so for today's episode, I wanted to tackle a particular topic that's actually come up a bunch in the Relationship Alive community on Facebook. And uh, I've gotten a bunch of emails about it as well. And that's the, the topic of microaggressions. And we're going to go into what that even means. But basically, um, in a nutshell, these are the, the subtle ways that we do violence on each other or that we receive violence. And, there, and I, I use the word violence intentionally um, because... I want you to recognize the importance of these things in detracting from the quality of interactions and relationships that we have with each other. Um, but also because um, I think it's worth pointing out that these things are often very subtle. So they they may be overt, but they may leave you or someone else with this subtle feeling that something just didn't go quite right. And uh, we're going to dive more deeply into the topic of microaggressions, how they happen in your in your interactions out in the world, and in particular, how they impact your relationships with your beloved, with your partner. So in order to have this conversation today, we have one of the world's leading experts on understanding the impacts of microaggressions, um, or as we were, I was just saying, subtle forms of discrimination on the mental and physical health of people of color, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer people, women, other marginalized groups. His name is Dr. Kevin Nadal, and he's a professor of psychology at both John Jay College of Criminal Justice and the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. Um, Dr. Nadal received his doctorate in counseling psychology from Columbia University, um, and I, I believe that he was uh, he worked a lot with Daryl Wing Sue, who's also one of the world's leading uh, researchers and authors about the topic of microaggressions. Uh, Kevin has also been featured widely in all forms of media. He was on he was a hot topic on the View, um, and. Perhaps least importantly, although I'm really curious to know how this came about so that I can maybe get my chance, but he was named one of People Magazine's hottest bachelors in 2006. So, um, you know, now that I'm single, maybe Kevin can give me some pointers on how to, how to get People Magazine's attention. In any case, we're here to have a, a very important conversation about um, the ways that you may be perpetuating 
uh, racism or any sort of discrimination in your own life, in your relationships, and not even know it. Or it maybe you're the recipient of it, and this will help you articulate better what's going on. And along, of course, with talking about it, we're going to talk about what to do about it. So um, as usual, we will have a detailed transcript of today's conversation, which you can grab by going to neilsatin.com slash micro, M-I-C-R-O, as in microaggressions. Or as always, you can text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions to download the transcript of today's show. All right, I think that's it from me. Let's get on with the show. Dr. Kevin Nadal, thank you so much for joining us here today on Relationship Alive. Thanks, Neil. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, we were just chatting earlier about how you're you're in New York, so you're you're in the place that was kind of pandemic central for a little while, and, and the numbers are coming down, so hopefully that's... Um, helping you live a, a, a slightly more easeful life in the big city with everything that's going on. Yeah, things in New York are, are getting better. So hopefully day by day, uh, we'll be back to uh, not exactly where we used to be, but an even stronger version of what New York has always been. Yeah, I'm right there with you for sure. Um, so Kevin, I'm wondering, can we can we just dive right into, I, I know you probably heard my little cursory introduction of what sure. microaggressions are, but um, you're the expert. So can you just summarize what what is a microaggression? And I know there are a few different categories of microaggressions. Um, so maybe we can just flesh that out for people a little bit more so that they have a sense of the kinds of things that we're talking about. Sure. Um, your definition was very good. Um, let me just add a little bit to it. So microaggressions are the subtle, more uh, unintentional forms of bias that might manifest uh, between people. Um, oftentimes, microaggressions are things that are unconscious and that people aren't aware of them. Um, sometimes people are aware that they are saying or doing something but might not recognize the impact that it has on others. Um, and microaggressions in general um, may have such a detrimental effect on people who experience them. Um, I appreciate that you mentioned the, the idea of violence with microaggressions because when we talk about microaggressions, we're not talking about uh, the idea that they're so micro or they're so small that they don't have an impact. Um, we're talking about the fact that they're sometimes so small that the accumulation of these experiences uh, may have a detrimental impact on things such as mental health, on physical health, on even things like uh, substance use and body image issues and uh, educational attainment and things like that. Um, there, there are several types of microaggressions that are theorized to exist. Uh, the first is called microassaults. So microassaults are uh, the more overt forms of biases that people uh, may participate in, but may not necessarily recognize that uh, they have a negative impact. So they're not as uh, overt and violent as, let's say, hate crimes or police brutality towards uh, Black people, um, but uh, they might still be intentional um, or overt and conscious and that people are aware of, of what they're saying. Um, so when we think about uh, you know, like government leaders who make blanket statements about uh, undocumented people calling them illegal immigrants or any other pejorative words, um, that would be considered a micro assault. Like it's an assaultive um, term that people are using. Um, it might not be uh, intended to be, uh, you know, violent towards the, the 
communities are they're targeting, um, but to the communities they're targeting it, who, who are targeted, it definitely feels um, very intentional and feels very uh, hurtful and, and uh, violent. Um, the second type of microaggression or micro insults, micro insults are the types of behaviors and statements that people engage in um, that may convey biases or stereotypes that they may have, have about certain groups. Uh, so for example, if a uh, black person gets onto an elevator and uh, the existing people on the elevator move to their right or left or grab their purses or wallets, um, that that's a, a sign of bias. A lot of times when people engage in that sort of behavior, they may not even be aware that they did it. It's so uh, subconscious, it's so ingrained, it's so embedded in them um, that they engage in this behavior and don't realize um, the impact that it has of the person who, who experiences it or witnesses it. Um, and that even though that is such a small and slight um, interaction that it may have lasted all of just a few seconds, um, that, may, that may ruin their entire day. Or that might um, be something that adds to the hundreds, maybe thousands of times something like that has happened to, um, which may then have a, a, a negative effect on their mental health or, or other factors. Um, the third type of microaggression are micro invalidations. And what micro invalidations are, are the, the ways that people verbally uh, negate people's lived experiences or their truths or their realities. Um, so for example, when somebody tells a, a woman, um, you think about your gender too much, sexism doesn't exist. When people say things like all lives matter, um, you know, black people are, are complaining too much. Um, when people say things like it's all in your head, uh, when they gaslight people, um, they, they convince other people that, that, that what their truth is, is, is actually inaccurate, um, when in reality it is uh, very accurate, um, that these are very invalidating. And so these are the types of microaggressions that may occur um, oftentimes in reaction to being called out on a, on a microaggression. So for example, if somebody uh, overhears somebody else saying or doing something that is biased, they call them out on the microaggression, the person then denies um, that it actually happened. Um, so with this, there, there are, these are the, the three overall um, categories of microaggressions. And then there are different themes of how these might manifest. You know, there are microaggressions that are related to criminality in which people of, of different marginalized groups are viewed as criminals. So this might be um, things like uh, people of color being followed around in stores, uh, security guards, um, you know, questioning people of color when they're shopping. Um, it also can involve people like transgender people who are who are presumed to be sex workers and who police officers might target in some way um, and question them in, in similar ways. Um, because of this assumption. Uh, there are microaggressions that are related to inferiority. Uh, so sometimes this is intellectual inferiority. So sometimes a compliment towards a person of color, especially a, a black person or a Latinx person, saying something like, wow, you are so articulate. Has anyone ever told you how articulate you are? Um, that that, while it's a compliment and may be intended to be um, something that's positive, it's actually you know, more representative of that person's biases, that perhaps you are complimenting someone on um, their uh, ability to speak uh, standard English because you have no, um, or because you have biases of, of, of how you believe that certain people of color speak. Um, and, you know, just as in the last example, there are microaggressions of, of a perpetual foreigner, um, people uh, being viewed as uh, aliens in their own land or perpetual foreigners um, in their own land, which basically means um, that uh, 
certain people of color are asked things like, where are you from? And the person says, I'm from New York. And then the, the person says, no, where are you really from? Um, and the person says, I'm really from New York. Um, and so conveying the message that this person really isn't America, American or, or couldn't possibly, you know, be from where they say uh, because of, of how they appear, or what their racial group is, um, which can be, you know, very annoying in general, but can be, you know, especially annoying if your family has been here for multiple generations and, you know, you're American as it gets and you speak as American English as possible and, and people still don't believe uh that that you are part of uh, this nation. There's a sense of that that they they're they're being communicated that uh, that they don't belong. Right, right. So these are just a few examples. Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking of the example that I read in um in your book. I think you were the editor of Microaggression Theory influence yep. and implications and there's this example of someone saying oh you know where are you from where are you really from oh you speak english so well and this person's like right. yeah I, i'm from san diego they speak english there like there's yeah, absolutely and um it and it is interesting because the u.s especially has this um on the one hand the the generation that i grew up in we we theoretically valued i think it was more of maybe an assimilationist approach to right. what our world's going to be like like the melting pot and and right. we're we're accepting everyone and 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 one of our strengths is in the fact that people come from everywhere and yet right. um i also grew up in maine where it's a pretty homogenous place it's becoming less so these days but um, you know, there weren't a lot of people who looked different than me. Um, right. Now, it was interesting for me because I grew up as a Jew in in a place where, like, I was the only Jew in my class right. and in my in my school. The only other one was my sister. And so there were other things that for me anyway, personally highlighted like, oh, this is this is what it's like to be a minority. But at the right. same time, I, I benefited from not being a visible minority, right. or at least not an obviously visible minority, which was different than, for example, the experience of um, there were a lot of Cambodian refugees who came mm -hmm. to our community in the 80s. They were, you know, escaping the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. And um, now here are people who looked very different and came from a different world where um, they were, and they were experiencing extreme acts of violence there. And then suddenly... Sure. you know, they're thrust into this place where people really weren't ready in a lot of cases to, to, um, to truly like right. deal with the reality of like, Oh, wait a minute. Like all this melting pot stuff, like here, it's happening right here. Like right. we're, we're trying to communicate with each other. We're trying to understand your experience. And, um, one thing that you brought up in, in your descriptions that was, I figured we we might as well address right like head on is this sense okay. of um, I think one of the critiques that I've heard of um, microaggressions is that it's perpetuating kind of this like victimhood culture that like, you know, everyone's so sensitive and, you know, like, why can't we just, um, you know, get over things like that or just accept that, like, we're going to make mistakes and we're, but it's not, it's not about people being inherently anything, inherently racist or inherently privileged or whatever it is. So it's, it's kind of like the, the colorblindness meets right. the critique of, of microaggression. So 
you know, where do where do we go with that? Like the is is this about like turning um, marginalized communities into perpetual victims? Right. You know, I, one of the things that, that really bothers me about this whole argument of victimhood is, is who is making that argument. It's people who come from privileged backgrounds. Uh-huh. It tends to be people who are white, who are men, who have some level of education, who probably are from and, uh, at least a middle class or higher. Um, they're probably heterosexual, they're probably cisgender. Um, and so there's this notion that why is everyone complaining? Um, well, maybe people are complaining because they are experiencing these things in their everyday lives. And maybe you're you're thinking that or you're labeling others as being victims because you haven't experienced uh, these types of, of encounters every day in your life um, so much that, it, again, it, it, there's research that is empirically shown for, for not just microaggressions, but experiences of overt discrimination and systemic racism and all these things lead to so many different issues like health issues and educational issues and so forth. Um, but, 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 but people, because of their own uh, personal experiences, don't view it that way. Um, they're, they're then uh, in this place where they want to gaslight other people's experiences, which in itself would be a microaggression, right? right. Um, so what I hope people um, who, who even entertain this idea of victimhood culture um, can understand is this notion of empathy, um, to understand that uh, perhaps you really need to put yourself into someone else's shoes or perspectives, whatever people want to call empathy, um, and really try to understand why someone might be experiencing or reacting to um, the things that that they're experiencing. Um, when people try to negate uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and say all lives matter, um, what I I I doubt many people are doing is empathizing with this notion that most black people in this country fear for their lives regularly, feel fear for their, their, their lives of their children regularly, because it is known um, that black people are uh, killed and targeted by law enforcement. Um, and if we don't empathize with that, if we don't um, take the time to, to read stories, to read science and to understand what science is telling us, um, then we're going to continue to um, to not really understand what's happening um, in our world if it's something that doesn't affect us. Um, and so, you know, for 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 people who are in these power positions. Um, you know, they can continue to say whatever they want, that it's victimhood or whatnot. Um, but for me, all I hear is that you haven't taken the time um, to understand a perspective that isn't your own um, and that you are, um, you know, merely basing all of your opinions on your own um, perspectives without uh, having other people that have maybe shared their own experiences or you haven't even taken the time um, to, to learn of what other people go through in their everyday lives. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I definitely want to get back to that because I think this is one, you know, really important question. It's how do we, uh, the, the people who are kind of the most polarized against recognizing this kind of bias are the people who in some ways need need it most like the need the awareness right. the most and so right. um so i want to i want to come back to that um but just to kind of round out our our conversation about the critiques sure. what do you think about when people who like at least on the surface might represent marginalized communities 
Um, I'm trying to think of the name of the person, but, you know, in other words, like a person of color who comes out and says, this is, um, right. you know, this is just victimhood or this stuff doesn't exist or these, you know, everyone needs to just like, whatever, like just get sure. their shit together and, and, uh, move on with things. Like when that person isn't, is obviously not coming from a place of white privilege and power what do you think right. is going on well, there? Well, I think one thing that you, we need to understand is that when one person who is from a certain group uh, says something, that they're not necessarily a representative of that entire group. And in fact, totally. sometimes those people, and sometimes what happens is that media outlets try to seek out people with those dissenting views so that they can confirm the biases that people who have um, those perspectives, confirm those biases with the people who have those perspectives. So when I think about, um, you know, people in the media, I don't even really want to say their names at all, so I won't. Um, when when they get that sort of attention, people who who believe that microaggressions aren't real or believe in victimhood culture or believe in, you know, any other anti-social justice movement, you know, that just basically confirms their bias. But that's just really one person. And that there are uh, the majority of people from historically marginalized groups don't feel this way. And how do I know that? Because we have data, we have facts, we have um, the ways that people vote. So when we know that 90%, 90% of Black people are voting uh, Democratic or liberal, that's our indication that perhaps <laughs> somebody who has um, a dissenting view is actually not representative of the entire group. For me, I personally don't try to pay attention to to people that try to represent communities that they don't they don't speak for uh, that they're, they they de certainly have a right to share their opinions, um, but I think we also need to um, to look at what majority of people um, in these communities actually think. Um, like it would be illogical to say that the log Republicans represent the LGBTQ community. We know that majority of LGBTQ folks are liberal and um, are pro social justice and uh, pro equity. And so, you know, it, sometimes we pay too much attention to to people that are actually the um, dissenters who are minorities of the actual community. And um, and I think that that this is a responsibility for the media to stop that. Um, that we need to not give people these platforms um, because they're perpetuating false narratives um, than what actually uh, the community is. Um, and you know, what, your original question is what, you know, what do we do about this or, or why do they, I, I don't forget how you phrased it, but, but my answer is, um, you know, perhaps they have their own internalized oppression um, that they've learned from however long they've, they've had uh, these beliefs um, that their group is bad in some way. So this happens. There's research on it. There's there's empirical research on this um, that people of color learn to hate themselves. Um, that people of, uh, of LGBTQ experience uh, learn to internalize negative messages about what it means to be LGBTQ. That women internalize sexism and so forth. And so what what happens then is um, that when people do internalize these messages, then they 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 lash out and they they might even turn against people in their own groups. Um, and it's it's not necessarily Necessarily, um, that they, uh, you know, are representative of any group uh, or, or of the group in general, but rather that they, you know, might have a lot of hatred towards uh, themselves and towards their own groups. Yeah. Kevin, we need to just take a quick break so I can mention this week's sponsor. If you are looking for some extra support, 
around the things that get in the way of your happiness or achieving your goals or improving your communication or overcoming the impacts of microaggressions in your life. One great way that you can do that from the comfort of your own home or office or anywhere really is BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can chat via text with your counselor at any time, and you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions all without having to go anywhere. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. They also offer a broad range of expertise so that you can find the person most suited to helping you with your own unique situation. In fact, because so many people are using BetterHelp, they are actually recruiting additional counselors in all 50 of the U.S. states. So whether it's depression, stress, anxiety, your relationship, trauma, anger, family conflicts, whatever is up for you, try out BetterHelp to help you move past the places where you're stuck. To start living a happier life today, you can try BetterHelp and get an extra 10% off your first month as a Relationship Alive listener. Just visit betterhelp.com slash alive and join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash alive. And thank you so much, BetterHelp, for your support of our mission here on Relationship Alive. And now let's get back to our conversation. I think, too, that, you know, anytime you stray from the data and let's just admit that there's been an, an interesting assault going on against yeah. facts and science and truth. Right. And, um, you know, we could do a whole, um, you know, that would probably be like the gaslighting episode or something like that. <laughs> right, right. Um, but uh, but it, I suppose it's possible that any of these people um could have had like what they could be one of those people who just like for whatever fortunate reason I'm putting fortunate in quotes like maybe they didn't experience anything that they ever identified as as bias in their lives maybe they did have you know if they're straying from data then they're either just making shit up or they're yeah. um they're speaking from their experience and their experience could just be the experience of this one person. And, and as you pointed out, not relate to like the much broader kinds of experiences that, that people are generally having. Right. And that could be their experience. And that's definitely their truth. And what I mentioned earlier uh, is that they might just need to empathize with why other people might not have that experience. So even when people of historically marginalized groups themselves um, publicly uh, talk about victimhood, victimhood culture, you know, I start to, to question, you know, why are they so adamant about this? Like they know that uh, people of their groups, and especially if majority of people, their groups um, experience uh, these forms of discrimination and, um, you know, have negative uh reactions to these experiences of discrimination like why are they so adamant of, of denying um, that that exists um, why not examine perhaps uh, that you're lucky that these things didn't happen to you that um, you know you're you're actually an outlier you're fortunate to not have uh, experienced these things um, and you know similarly to to what I had mentioned in general is that just to empathize like to 
to not, what do we have to gain by uh, denying people of what their reality is, you know? Um, and, and maybe perhaps if these folks had, um, you know, more opportunities to learn about uh, the true realities of the world um, and about systemic oppression through, you know, ethnic studies classes and gender studies classes and queer studies classes, perhaps, you know, they would have been introduced to a different line of thinking than simply relying um, on either their own experiences uh, or what, uh, you know, historic mainstream educational systems um, try to push on us that, you know, to be colorblind or to not um, think about uh, difference and to focus mostly on the positive and, and all the, those things, which are very ideal. But um, the truth is that we don't live in that world. We live in a world that's very oppressive. We live in a country um, in which certain groups are able to thrive and other groups uh, continue to suffer. Um, and so, so why be so adamant about about denying other people's experiences. You know, I'll just use myself as an example. You know, I have a lot of historically marginalized groups, which I talk about a lot, um, but I also have, am part of a lot of historically privileged groups um, as a, a person without disabilities, uh, as a person who is generally a cisgender male, um, as a person who now has educational access and um, and has, uh, you know, even some, um, uh, socioeconomic status uh, that's, you know, rising. Um, like, why would I want to be like an asshole to people who, who have these, you know, these historically marginalized groups? Like, why would I ever say to a person living with a disability, like, you know, it's not really that hard. If you just, you know, <laughs> get your act together, you know, you could, right. uh, you know, why would I do that? Like, and why wouldn't I just be able to see like, wow, you are a person with a disability. That means um, that there are going to be so many challenges that you have uh, just by having that disability and living in a world um, that wasn't built for you or living in a world that makes it harder for you to be able to just be yourself and to, to live your life. Like, why would I, why would I deny that? Right. Like similarly with women, like um, as a, as a, a cisgender man, um, why would I, ever say like, you know, sexual assault isn't real. Um, I've never experienced that. Like, and I don't worry about being sexually assaulted when I walk down the street. Um, so why would I deny that that happens? And especially if I have data to know that one in every five women is sexually assaulted um, in their lifetime or one in uh, every six seconds that a woman is sexually assaulted. Like why, if we know that this is a reality, like why would I deny that? Um, so it's just, you know, really reflecting on, you know, your own experiences and just being empathetic, like knowing that, you know, this is the reality. Like, I can't deny that Black people and transgender people and women and Native Americans and all these other groups are people, there are going to be obstacles that they experience because they live in a world uh, that was not made for them or they live in a world that continues to make uh, their lives harder. Uh, for whatever reason, um, and uh, in you know, I just want to be that person that tries to uh, to support others, to understand others, uplift others, um, and uh, you know, do whatever I can to make the world a more equitable place for for all. Yeah, there are a few few different things kind of coalescing together in my brain at the moment. Um, one of them being this is just kind of my own pet theory. So I, I don't necessarily yep. have data to support this, but 
My pet theory is that in general, people are doing kind of the best that they can and that they they operate from a frame of reference that they're a good person. In fact, I think there's a behavioral science term for this, but basically it's like assuming the best of yourself and assuming the worst of other people. And right. um, and so when when someone is confronted with something that they've done that someone else has experienced as hurtful or derogatory or what have you, um, that they have to confront their own sense of um, like a, like an internal emotional collapse, which for the, for the perpetrator, you know, to use a strong term of, of a, a microaggression or a macroaggression, like they have to recognize that they themselves aren't perfect and then they have to right. deal with whatever level of shame or um, like whatever emotions come up for them in that moment that my guess is th- that those emotions become huge obstacles to them being able to meet the world with empathy as you're as you're pointing out right and and that's you know that's real now this is just this idea of um people become really defensive. That's a natural inclination to become defensive when anything is challenged uh, about yourself. Um, and so, you know, I acknowledge all the time that people, uh, to, be, to be defensive is to be human. Um, and there's also so much that we can allow that defensiveness to, uh, to, to continue, especially if we're people that uh, are presented with new knowledge um, that perhaps even if we think we're good people, that if we perpetuate certain things that we're actually not being good people. If we you know, um, ignore the, the, the racial injustices that happen in the world, the just injustices against other uh, historically marginalized communities too, um, then you're actually not a great person because you, uh, you know, are, are actively trying to deny um, based on, uh, even though there is science and uh, research that supports that these things do exist, that you're, you're actively trying to ignore those things. Um, and so, you know, this is part of the process. And this is why it's so important for people to do this reflective work. It's so important for people to, uh, to come to terms with some of the harsh realities of our world. And part of that comes with uh, understanding the ways that people have benefited um, from power and privilege. Uh, part of this you know, comes from actually educating oneself, whether it's through school or reading or documentaries or, or any number of things. And then part of these comes from learning from lived experiences. I think if people had more exposure to people that were different than them, um, that they might get it a little bit more. You know, there's a, there's a theory that, you know, there's a lot of uh, questions about it, but I think it, in its core, there might be uh, at least some truth to it, and it's called contact theory. And the contact, the contact theory says is that the more exposure that people have to people of other groups, the more understanding and empathy they might have uh, with those groups. Um, and, you know, if we just think about this from, you know, very personal practical experiences, you know, LGBTQ rights are still fairly new, even though Stonewall happened uh, now 50 years ago, 51 years ago, um, LGBTQ rights are very new. Same-sex marriage was not legal in the United States until five years ago. And so many people were very overt about their anti-LGBTQ biases or beliefs um, that they, they may have had 
they still are, many still are, but the times have changed. And their Pew Research Center finds every year that that, that number uh, switches. It used to be that majority were anti-LGBTQ people, and now majority people are pro-LGBTQ people. And part of that is that people have just been exposed to more LGBTQ people. More people are coming out. More people are coming out in, in families that say that they've never had any LGBTQ people, but they've always been there. They just never came out. Um, more people are being exposed to LGBTQ, LGBTQ people in their workplace. Again, they've always been there, but now they're out or, or starting to come out. Um, and so that starts to change uh, our belief systems. And so, you know, when people say things like all lives matter, you know, I asked them, like, okay, well, well, how many Black people are in your life in meaningful ways? You know, a lot of times people will say, like, well, I have a coworker who's Black. Okay, well, how often do you interact with that person? Do you have them over to your house for dinner? Do you talk to them about their racial justice or racial experiences and, and their thoughts about racial justice? Um, and if they say no, then, you know, that's very telling to me because it's, it's, it says that, you know, there's some, on some level, like there is, uh, there's some reason why you are, why you don't have people of, of uh, in this case, people of color or black people in your life. And what is that about? And so for you all to do that reflection so that you can start to the process of, of understanding what people's, um, you know, experiences are. Um, and by, when I say this, I don't, I definitely do not mean go out and find the, the first black friend you could find because that actually would be horrible. <laughs> um, but uh, it's to question that and then to organically, you know, think about ways that you can have exposure to people that are different from you um, without tokenizing them, without exoticizing them, without, um, you know, making them uh, do extra work for you. Um, but, but, you know, again, I think it takes like some, some reflection on, you know, uh, why is it that you don't have this, this level of exposure uh, to, to difference in your life? Right, right. Um, th- so there are a couple different things coming to mind right now. One being that you know, I'm going to make a generalization, which is that most people who are listening to us are at least operating from a growth mindset. Like if you're if you're here listening to me and Kevin, you care about this stuff and you want to be part of the solution. And um, and so for probably a lot of these people and I'm thinking about in the microaggression theory book, there were kind of these different categories of um of like where people fall on the spectrum of of um how they respond to microaggressions and there's everything from the people who are insensitive and afraid and those are the people who kind of meet conversations about this or being called out with defensiveness and anger and and perhaps and most likely even more um microaggressions um you know i can there are any number of conversations on facebook that i've had that would fall into that category um but then there are people who are empathetic but don't necessarily know i think it's called like the empathic but unaccountable type where Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. like they get it but they don't really know quite how to engage in the conversation in ways that someone who's anti-racist and and is learning how to engage in these kind of conversations and willing to fail um might be be able to engage in the conversation so there is like that that spectrum of um you know, how people who are um, 
who are trying to figure out what the heck is going on and who are trying to learn from people who are experiencing microaggressions um, or who might be like trying to extrapolate their own experience of microaggressions right. onto other communities uh, like that in and of itself is an evolution and then there's like, and then there's like, okay, and what do you do with the like, like generally I'm like, I support this stuff, but I don't know how to deal with the, the people who are just like incessant, whatever I, whatever I say, however I try to approach it with them, they're just going to gaslight me and, and uh, be angry. Sure. Um, and I think this comes into, you know, at the beginning of our conversation, we, we, mentioned how this might impact people's interpersonal relationships so maybe this would be a good good moment to sure. like bring that in as well before we kind of wrap it all up um because sure. you know we're talking about this in terms of the societal level but within a couple there are any number of opportunities for one person to do subtle things that undermine their partner and undermine the connection between them sure I mean, you know, we could probably talk about this for hours, but to think about um, some of the key points that I, I would make are, you know, one is this idea that to be committed to fighting against microaggressions um, is not just, you know, how to respond to microaggressions, but it's also just how can I actively engage in fighting against injustice in every single part of my life? Um, it's to know that you can engage in, um, in, in addressing microaggressions that happen in the workplace or in families, but it's also to learn more and to be educated about the various ways that our systems are oppressive. It's to learn how to teach our children to disrupt societal norms like gender role norms and body image issues and skin color issues and all these other things that, that children learn from a very early age. It means, you know, calling people out and calling people in correcting people on language that might be um, offensive or hurtful in ways that are effective. So, you know, being able to to say like, oh, what do you mean by that? Um, when they say a, a term that you may not necessarily uh, agree with, and then maybe saying like, oh, I don't know if you know, but certain people might find that word offensive. So you're doing so in a way where you're not shaming them, um, but rather trying to educate them. For me, a big part of it is also just, you know, reminding people that this is not just a moment in time where people are just caring about racial justice, but this is a movement. This is something that we're actively trying to, to do to change our world. If we really care about uh, people of historically marginalized groups, in this case right now, if we really care about Black people and Black lives, um, then we have to disrupt anti-Blackness at, at every level, like from the books that children are learning and reading, um, the the way the media images that we have on television, and then on top of that, the systemic things like police brutality and voters' rights and, and all those sorts of things. But, but back to your question about within interpersonal relationships, to really recognize that there are definitely microaggressions that can occur in romantic relationships. We would hope there would be none because in a romantic relationship, it is hoped that this person is either your um, most intimate person or uh, someone that you know you you trust and love and support so much. But but this is the problem with my 
microaggressions. Microaggressions are so incessant that because of these socialized, internalized beliefs um, that we've all learned somehow, that they can manifest even among your most inter interpersonal, intimate uh, relationships. Um, some of these ways might be more obvious. Like, so for example, interracial romantic relationships, lots of microaggressions can occur. Um, things that partners might say, especially white partners might say to their partners of color um, that might be obviously uh, embedded in some sort of racial bias. So that's obviously there. Um, when, when it comes to, to heterosexual relationships, um, there are lots of ways in which sexist microaggressions um, occur, uh, but that many people may not even label as microaggressions, at least not initially, uh, because it's so embedded into our society. Um, so for example, gender role norms are a, a prime example of microaggressions that occur towards women. Um, and so when we presume that women are going to cook or clean, um, when we presume that, that men are gonna drive all the time and the women aren't supposed to drive or any number of stereotypes or biases that people have, um, and those are brought into the relationship, um, that, that that could be considered a microaggression. It could be that the woman doesn't care or doesn't say anything, um, which is very you know real. And, and, and part of that, it might be because she herself has internalized uh, these gender role, gender role norms herself. Um, but if she does care, um, then this might be an issue that comes up a lot in which men might be, their male partners might be challenged um, on the ways that, that his, his sexism um, both overt sexism as well as subtle microaggressive sexism um, may impact uh, their relationship. And, and it's not just with heterosexual couples, with, with same-sex couples uh, or uh, couples with where there's at least one transgender or gender non-conforming partner. Um, these sorts of things might happen as well. Like there's definitely a chance for a, a cisgender partner um, who has a transgender partner to enact some, for, some form of transphobic bias um, in their relationship. Um, they're uh, one of the most common things that comes out in research with uh, transgender women uh, who have heterosexual cisgender male partners are things like that these the cis, the cisgender male partners uh, will you know, be sexually involved with the, their transgender girlfriends, um, but they won't want to take them out in public or they don't want to tell their friends about them. And so that could be a really hurtful thing that happens to their relationship where, you know, they're seeing each other sexually and perhaps in private, um, but he's not proud to, to be seen with her in public. Um, and that is very much a hurtful, uh, you know, microaggression um, that occurs. Mm. Um, and even with same-sex couples, uh, that same-sex couples who, you know, presumably are of the same gender, um, that they might engage in a lot of different microaggressions that are based on their own internalized uh, homophobia, biophobia, or heterosexism in general, um, meaning that, um, you know, some of the arguments that they might have, some of the conflicts that they might have might be based, again, on some of these gender role norms. Like a lot of times I'll see same-sex male couples in which one is traditionally more masculine, one is traditionally more feminine, um, and uh, it's expected that the feminine one does more housework or does more of the feminine types of um, stereotype feminine types of things, um, which again can cause lots of uh, 
conflicts in that relationship, mm. even with when it comes to like feelings. And I know this is something that you talk about on your podcast a lot, how to communicate and feelings. Uh, a lot of, uh, of gay or queer men in relationships with other men, you know, they've internalized these gender role norms of toxic masculinity just as much as heterosexual men have. And so sometimes they have difficulty expressing their feelings or they might resort to anger instead of talking um, through, you know, any of uh, the feelings that they might have. So that, you know, those might be a little bit beyond microaggressions, but when, when those sorts of arguments lead to the perpetuation of, of gender role norms, you know, then we're, we're, we're looking at the ways that, you know, their internalized homophobia or internalized biases in general, you know, now affects the relationship. So, right. um, you know, so what I would just say in a nutshell is just that people just need to, to just to, to question and challenge, you know, any parts of their relationships and, and to think to themselves, is there a possibility that gender is involved in this conflict? Is there a possibility that race or sexual orientation or social class is yeah. involved? That's another one that you see in romantic relationships, social class, the expectation that people want to do something, but maybe somebody doesn't have the capacity or the means to do something and the other one does. That's a social class expectation, um, which then can manifest into some sort of microaggression. Um, religious uh, differences that happen. There's lots of microaggressions that could happen in, the, in those types of uh, relationships as well. Right. It's. I think overall, I like where you got with that, which is this: the ability in any moment to be able to step back from whatever situation is happening and to say, like, is what's happening right here? Like, could you like what happens when you look at the situation through the lens of like a power imbalance, um, mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. to use like a word yeah. that, you know, seems to be uh, woven through all of the isms, right? It's like who has power yeah. and who doesn't in a particular right. moment. And, um, and to be able to say like, what's, what is the power dynamic that's at play here? And then, and then to find a way with your partner or if you're out in the world, in the workplace, et cetera, to find a way to bridge the gap with that person to inv to invite them and i think that's kind of the the calling in versus calling out that you mentioned a few right. moments ago it's like how do you invite that person into the conversation with you so that if right. you inadvertently um you know if you want to do something and your partner doesn't and when you step back from it you're like oh that's because like for me, like I came from a, a upper middle class family where spending money on whatever is not a big deal and they didn't. And yeah. so it's a bigger issue for them. Like, how can I how can I bring that or vice versa? Right. Because um, yeah. it may be that you realize right. um, that that's why you're feeling hurt or or fearful or whatever it is about this particular situation to be able yeah. to say to the other person, like, hey, can can we can we talk about this? And would you be willing to to look at this situation through this particular lens with me? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's one way that I that just kind of occurs to me that you might have more luck um, not triggering someone else's defensiveness or right. or their shame about where you know wherever they come from and. And right. be able to actually enter into the dialogue with them. 
Right. I think that's the yeah, hardest like thing that. in the in the interpersonal, like in the romantic relationships is because at the core, you love this person and they hurt you or you hurt them. Right. And then and you somehow like have to deal with that. But I mean, as a coach to to couples, I see this all the time, you know, where one of them inadvertently hurts the other person or says something that represents some assumption that they have. And, and sure. it can be really challenging to get both people back to their curiosity where they can right. be like oh what like what's really going on here and and how do we get at it while we we don't forget that you know deep down we care about each other and i even think that's true for like coworkers or or what have you right. that like we want to we want to get along ultimately i mean not there are some people who seem to just want to be assholes but for the most part i think we all just kind of yeah. want to be able to get along with each other but we, we're going to have to get through these moments of of where we've we've broken the the trust between people and find our way back to, to connecting in those moments. Yeah. You know, one, one thing that I just want to add to that, I think everything you said is right on target. Yeah, please. Um, and and everything that you're saying, uh, or at least in this example right here is, is like, you know, how do we deal with this when conflict arises, which in reality is just, is like, how are we reacting to uh, this conflict and then trying to reflect on, you know, how this power imbalance might, might uh, occur in this situation. Um, and I also challenge people to do some proactive work. So before any conflict arises, um, can you talk about how power um, might influence, um, you know, everything about you as a couple or in the case of friends or coworkers, anything about your friendship um, so that in when and if, uh, well, probably when a conflict occurs, um, that it wouldn't be coming out of nowhere, that you will already have had some introductory conversation about these issues. You know, I think for, for some couples, this has to happen right away. So if you have couples of different religious backgrounds, you tend to have those conversations right away. Different racial groups, you tend to have those conversations right away. Um, but a lot of times, like with heterosexual couples, we don't talk about or they don't talk about, I shouldn't say we, it's definitely not a we, um, they don't talk about those issues of gender and, and sexism at the start of their relationship because that they've never had to, because that's just been the presumption that men and women are, when they get together, like there are other things to worry about, that that's the norm to be, you know, um, in this couple, that's just a norm. But also for queer couples, there's this presumption that uh, because you're both queer or the same sex, that there is, that you don't have to worry about any other dynamics either. But there are still going to be dynamics that occur because of your own, you know, lived experiences and identities and, um, you know, all these other internalized uh, beliefs that we all have. And so to not just react to, to conflict, but also to, um, to be proactive before conflict even occurs. Yeah, I love that suggestion. So important. And and that way, yeah, like you said, at least you have kind of the background of having either had those conversations successfully or maybe even having tried to have those conversations because I could see yep. those being challenging conversations to have to just kind of lay all that bare. Right. When so when a conflict comes up or when you're looking for support from a from a third party, um, you, you have the the fabric of like, yeah, we're we're aware of these things or these are the things we've talked right. about. Um, and so right. even if you if you miss some things and and someone kind of looking in from the outside says, well, have you ever talked about the fact that, 
you're you know come from this background and you come from this other background and and you know you can you can hear that without it triggering your defensiveness or should it trigger your defensiveness you recognize that's what's happening and and you go through all those important tools of regrounding yourself and coming back to to who you right. to to your centered place so that you can have those conversations right you know, and as we talk about this, like, you know, I wonder why some people don't have these conversations from the very start. Like, why isn't this part of your dating process? Like, you know, could this be something that when you choose your partner that you're already thinking about how they feel totally. about social justice? You know, again, that's something that's important to me. Maybe it's not something important to people right away, but maybe that should be something that we at least think about when we, we start dating and getting to know somebody before they become our primary romantic partner. Yeah. I agree 100%. I mean, I, I was just kind of laughing because, you know, still for so many people, I think that that entry point into relationship is just like, I'm attracted to you. We have fun right. together. Let's have sex. Yep. You know, it's like all of those things. And then afterwards, there's like the, whoa, wait a minute. Like, who are you? And and right. how did we get here? <laughs> Right. And, uh, you know, yes, I totally agree with you that there's so many opportunities to really know the person um, before you have to be doing uh, damage control. <laughs> right, absolutely. <laughs> well, Kevin, absolutely. thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to have this conversation today. It's so important, one that I think we could easily talk about for another hour or two. I'm wondering, you know, what's, what's current for you? What's, what's going on where um, you, you mentioned before we before I hit the record button that you have a new book that's out and yeah, if people want to find out more about your work and where your passion lies at this moment, what, what's going on? Sure. Thank you. Um, so I have a new book that just came out. It's called Queering Law and Order, LGBTQ Communities in the Criminal Justice System. Um, it's a book that describes the history of LGBTQ people in government and law. Uh, so outlining things such as police brutality, experiences in prisons, um, experiences with uh, immigration system and so forth. It just came out. It's one of the first books to, to really cover these topics in this comprehensive way. Uh, so I hope that you could either buy it yourself or to uh, suggest your libraries to pick it up um, and also just to, you know, to learn more about LGBTQ communities and, and criminal justice in general. Absolutely. Well, um, that's that definitely sounds like something worth checking out. And uh, just in general, Kevin, I've really enjoyed having you in the show and I hope that um, that we can have you back at some point to, to talk even more. Sure. Um, and uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, if you want a transcript of today's episode, we've certainly covered a broad range of topics. Just visit neilsatin.com slash micro, or you can text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And, uh, and I will also have links to Kevin Nadal's website and to his books, um, the one that he just named on um, queering law and order and also uh, the book that I mentioned earlier microaggression theory influence and implications um, I think Kevin you've written like nine or ten books at this point right so yeah 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 so just choose your favorite books to highlight. <laughs> awesome well thank you so much for for being with us today Kevin really appreciate it you're welcome take care thank you for having me thank you for listening to another episode of relationship alive 
If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word PASSION, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.